on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho. Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, the OBS Hall of Fame is back. But this time, it's the Hall of Shame. Weston and Matt induct a singer who's one of the greatest of all time. But can a neutered goat still be called a goat? But first, with the Chiefs and Bucks set to collide in Super Bowl 55 in Tampa, we tackle the big game through opera glasses and offer a few betting tips, plus two-minute drill. As proof that the OBS bump really works, friends of the show Brenda Ray and Anthony Roth Costanzo have won this year's Beverly Sills Artist Award. Great to be doing yet another OBS with a fantastic team. Oliver Camacho, how goes it? Oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> and I'm just Weston. checking in, just saying hi. Weston, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Great. I love your lighting. That ring oh, light you. is really paying dividends. Mm. Matt Cummings, thanks, Opera. how are you, sir? Doing great. Getting cozy. Excellent. And Ashley Hardgrave? I'm doing great because for all of the most recent shows, I have come on with Lady Firsts in Sports, and I can do it again this week. Sarah, <laughs> Goodrum, <laughs> Sarah Goodrum has been hired as the minor league hitting coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers. She is the first woman to have that role in any major league baseball organization. Congratulations, Sarah Goodrum. Man. Woo-hoo. The downside of sports this week, my Red Wings are losing, 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 and COVID is now tearing through the NHL. I feel like I need to swap out this jersey and get like the away colors, which is red with a white logo. Maybe that was going to turn thing around for the wings. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Super Bowl 55. Really? 55? Something that's older than me. (laughs) (laughs) By this much. (laughs) This Sunday with the Kansas City Chiefs going for back-to-back titles, this time against Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I want to get the OBS team and all of you out there in opera land ready for the game. So here's our advice on how opera fans can enjoy this weekend's gridiron action. Weston, let me go to you first. All right, there's two givens in every Super Bowl. A, it's about spectacle, and B, it has a totally predictable ending. The (laughs) underdog never wins. So give me an opera that seems to fall into the category and meet those two checkpoints. Well, if we're being honest, uh, the uh, predictable ending and all about spectacles, really just the entirety of 19th century Italian opera. Uh, Take I it mean, back. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking about like lots of like middle early Verdi, like uh, plot contrivances, uh, even like, you know, like Rossini, you have a lot of these like Commedia dell'arte derived archetypes in all of his comedies. Uh, and, you know, there's no metal- melodrama like the Super Bowl or an opera by Donizetti. So I, for me, opera and and sports are are kind of heightened art forms, and realism is rarely really the point. We don't really care about what um, uh, Tom Brady does in real life. We only and, and in the case of Ashley, we don't care about Tom Brady at all. Um, but uh, but similarly, in nineteenth century Italian opera, it's always about the singers or the players. If you want to extend the metaphor a little bit, uh, the plot to Il Trovatore may make no sense and may might end exactly how you think it would if you know anything about the conventions of Italian melodrama. But it doesn't matter as long as whoever's singing Atsuchena is just strutting that vampa. Uh, as as we say in the football biz, uh, <laughs> that's actually it, the the correct Italian conjugation. Too. <laughs> so nothing so tr- nothing truly surprising is going to happen in a Super Bowl or the Barber Seville, but there's enough variety for each performance that you can re- so that seeing that game, feeling what the singers are feeling and 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 uh, what the football players are footballing. Uh, what you see, how that performance plays out, 
even though the outcome is pretty basic, can be really, really exciting or incredibly uh, dull, whether your favorite team wins or not. We definitely have I, I dovetail on that just sentiment. Uh, every 17th and 18th century opera seria plot can yes. be described as something has upset the hierarchy or the order <laughs> and order is restored. That's every, it. Every, every single one. And most of them were written by the same person. It's so. <laughs> true. And all of we'll them come back to days, that later. All of them street day some sort of vampa. That's going to be my new phrase for They everything. all street day that vampa. <laughs> so that's what's happening on the field then. But obviously the Super Bowl, of course, people watch it just for the ads alone. They're a big part of what that Super Bowl culture is. Matt, what opera singers or singer maybe do you want to see advertising what product? <laughs> so normally when I think of opera advertising, I do think of those giant glossy Rolex ads that you find in every single program uh, of any show that you time. ever go to. But we don't need those this year because time is meaningless. So take <laughs> that, Rolex. Um, so instead, what they should all do is put that money toward a big old glamorous mask PSA. Hi, get all the top singers. Ooh. Get Renee. Get Juan Diego Flores. Mm. Bring back Leontine Price and Grace Bunbury. Do it to Absolutely. do it for them. <laughs> Bring on Sandra Radvanovsky and Jamie Barton. The more the merrier. Some young up and comers. Ben Bernheim would be great. Pretty Yende. Just um keep Placido Domingo and Anna Trepko as far away from this <laughs> as possible. No thanks. No thanks. No. We will see. This is a great prediction, actually. We will see how many masks are worn or advertised uh, during the course of the Super Bowl. All right, Matt mm. Cummings with the ads. So um, another part of the spectacle off of the field, of course, is the halftime show. Let's do a super quick micro pop quiz here. Which singer sang in the halftime show of Super Bowl number one? Oh, gosh. I have no oh, idea, gosh. George. No idea. Okay, well, we're going to give you a hint. This is a famous musical theater woman. Mm. Super Bowl one. And if you're doing the math, Super Bowl 55 is 2021. 54 so. years ago. <laughs> I have no idea, George. Please just tell me. <laughs> uh, she was also famous for Hello, Dolly. Hello. Uh, are you talking about Carol Channing? Carol Channing. How Was times it really? have changed that Carol Channing uh, sang the halftime show Super Bowl. That's amazing. I'm Good so glad her. to be here for some football. Old, old jazz baby <laughs> Carol Channing. Yes, <laughs> baby. Oh, so treasure. I've been thinking about who I would like to see direct the halftime show because it's sort of on the level of the Olympics, the opening mm. ceremonies of the Olympics. You need big, true, true. broad strokes. You, you're on a huge stage. And I would love to see not just like, I don't know, Coldplay or somebody like doing the halftime show. I really want some theatricality and some big gestures. So can you For imagine sure. like Robert Wilson directing <laughs> the halftime show? Uh, I, I physically, like, <laughs> n not a joke, like uh, tingle all the way down my spine as you said that. <laughs> like Ew. I, I, Those poor amazing. singers who would have to just pose and hold just those poses in for profile. hours. Like they this. just perform the entirety of uh, of Stop Einstein that. on the beach for the halftime show. It, well, uh, that's the thing. Is like the halftime show would be about three times as long as the game. Oh, absolutely! Oh, yeah. It's perfect. I would also love it if Yuval Sharon, American director, artistic director at Michigan Opera <laughs> Theater, I would love to have his um, his agent provocateur style apply to the halftime show. Right. So like everyone's got their headphones on and they're listening to their own, you know, recording yep, or, yep. or there's Agreed. like just cars driving that the crowd around everywhere. doesn't get to hear. That's exactly right. <laughs> I will say the one person who I think is a great director and definitely not the person to direct the halftime show would be the Spanish director Calixto Bieto. He's a huge director in Europe, but typically his work involves nude women being mutilated. Definitely not mm. something for a halftime show. I mean, they, they gave, uh, who was it who had the, the wardrobe malfunction? Janet Jackson. Who I mean, was if they it? didn't like, allow on, Janet West. Jackson do it, I don't think they're going to like let Bieto do that. <laughs> so after the game, uh, the Super Bowl MVP gets interviewed, gets a trophy, and typically says, I'm going to Disneyland. But Ashley, where in the opera world should this year's MVP Tom Brady go? Nope. 
First of all, it's not going to be Tom Brady over my dead body. <laughs> Listen, if you're going to do this, you go big or you go home. So the MVP is going to say, I'm going to La Scala in 2022 because that's going to be the next time that it's safe to travel internationally. <laughs> P.S. Go Chiefs. We're going to wrap up our Super Bowl preview here with some predictions for the final score to help you out with your your betting, your over-unders, and your parlays and your spreads. Oliver, what's your final well, score? Well, I'm really invested in the fact that Super Bowl Sunday is also the first day of the Australian Open because of the time difference. So I'll be mm. watching that, guys. <laughs> no bets for Oliver. Weston Williams, what's your Super Bowl prediction? Uh, well, if you guys want to put down any money, uh, I'm perfectly willing. Uh, I am pretty confident. I've I've looked at all the stats, all the numbers, and I'd be willing to bet a fair amount of money that at least one football will be thrown or kicked. Matt Cummings, give us that Super Bowl prediction. I just want Tom Brady to lose. Oof. <laughs> here, here. He's, he's a Republican too, right? Yeah, he's he a, is. He's like a, so, yeah. He's worn a red hat more than he's once. He's like a MAGA guy, yeah. Ashley, give us your Super Bowl final score. Kansas City 34, Tampa Bay 20. Ooh. And my own prediction is going to be uh, Indianapolis Colts 29, Chicago Bears 17. <laughs> I'll take that bet, George. Why am I the only one who gave an actual prediction? <laughs> no, that, that Ashley tracks. is a professional. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer. Our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. So for today's Hall of Fame segment, we have something uh, a little special for you all. Um, up until now, the Hall of Fame has focused on singers of the 20th century or 21st century. Um, but the thing is, opera goes far beyond the history of the 20th century. Um, but the problem has always been that without recordings, a lot of singers tend to sort of fade away. You might have heard them once or twice while you're doing your your thesis research or whatever, but you don't really know a lot about what they actually sound like sounded like you have to really rely on history musicology um and to me there's something really fascinating about the transient nature of a lot of old opera practices and singers and performers um sometimes you read descriptions of them you just want wish you could go back in time and hear them but you can't and because of that most artists don't really uh, that have sung opera most of them to date we'll never really know anything about. It's very sad because, you know, recordings didn't really start until the turn of the last century. Um, but there are a few singers, including the person we're talking about today, who somehow managed to remain in the public consciousness despite a lack of recordings, despite, you know, the onward march of time. And with that in mind, today we're going to be talking about the great Castrato Farinelli. Um, even though he died in 1782, he has not faded into obscurity in the same way that even singers from like the 1930s have. So today we're going to try to determine why his cultural impact was so important and uh, what made him so special as a performer. So uh, give us the 30 second bio for Fadinelli and tell us which pasta shape he was named after. Well, uh, I'm going to need more than 30 seconds just for his uh, birth name because Farinelli was just a stage name. Um, and uh, his pasta his pasta name or birth name is Carlo Maria Michelangelo Nicola Broschi. He was born in 1705 to a musical family, a, a fairly well-off family. He was a very talented boy soprano, but uh, he... Because he was from a well-off family, he there was no expectation that he would uh, become a castrato. But uh, after his father died, there was some financial complications, um, and um, he was thrown off a horse, which meant that he had to, uh, um, which was the justification for um, having the operation, so to speak, to become a castrato. Will. 
Now, if you don't know what castrato, uh, castrati are, um, just a kind of a little overview here. In the early days of opera, I'm composers... Just, I'm just going to turn off my video while, while Weston yeah. describes this. <laughs> I will not put in any pictures, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, but composers wanted to produce music that covered uh, a large range of pitches and timbres. Uh, however, if you go back into like the Middle Ages you um, and the, even the early Renaissance to a certain extent, you had a lot of... Uh, uh, restrictions on women who could perform. So if you wanted someone to sing in what is just typically considered a woman's range, you would often take a very talented boy soprano in the local church choir, do some snipping, and then they would no longer go through puberty in the same way. And um, it's it's worth mentioning that that was really true mostly in churches and cathedral choirs. Exactly, that this was yes. kind of pre in the pre-opera world. Yes, there was a little bit of it happening really early on, but um, even uh, even by by the sixteen eighties, I think it it had it was no longer the case. But it should be pointed out too that even though it would give them the range that we would more typically associate with women, there are other qualities to the voice of a castrato uh, reportedly that um, are not the same. There there are genuinely things that happen to your body physiologically when you go through a castration operation that uh, allow you to sing in very unusual ways. First of all, you stop producing testosterone. Your larynx doesn't change, so you can still sing quite high. But um, you do keep growing, um, and as a result, you have a much a larger rib cage. The bones, particularly the the joints, don't grow as they're supposed to. So you'll get a much larger rib cavity, which will affect the size of your organs, but will also give you a huge amount of air to work with, which gives you a lot of flexibility and a lot of uh, range that's um, that was really otherworldly because this is not a kind of sound you could get naturally just um, just growing up. And because of that, it was a very prized vocal type, even well beyond the point where it was technically legal in most places. That being said, it was eventually made illegal um, by the um, uh, by the 19th century. It was pretty much illegal. But we there. Uh, so as a result, there's not a lot of direct uh, knowledge of what Castrati sounded like. Um, but I would like to play one clip uh, really quick. This is um, uh, this is the from the only known recording session with a castrato. And we should point out that this was he was uh, used to a very old fashioned style of singing. It's very sort of um, sobby. There's like a sob in every note. There's some uh, interesting pitch distinctions that may have been on purpose. It might have been because he was past his prime. We're not entirely sure. And of course, it was record recorded in 1904. So um, we don't exactly know about like the, the audio quality, but I hope that this little clip of Moreschi singing a little bit of uh, Ave Maria. His name, uh, his the, name the, is the... Alessandro Moreschi. Oh, Alessandro Moreschi, excuse me. Um, singing a little bit will give you a sense of what that kind of voice might have sounded like.
All right, so Weston has given us the background of testosterone and prepubescence, also known as Weston in freshman year. <laughs> that was me! Of college. Uh, <laughs> Matt, tell us about singing style and the ability that's required it's, here. So, like, what's interesting about that clip is that it's both, that we just listened to of Alessandro Moreschi, is both that it's an old singer past his prime and really, really antiquated recording technology before Mm, before its prime so like on both kind of poles we are not getting a really good we're not really getting a we're not really getting a good idea of what a castrato sounded like we just only enough to know that it sounded different it sounded novel and when that there are a number of really kind of refer commonly referred to accounts of musicians and composers who would who got the chance to hear castrati and particularly farinelli perform in these operas in london and uh, a number of those descriptions have kind of been passed down so one from uh johan kvantz who was a, a flutist and a composer notes that his intonation was pure his trill beautiful his breath control extraordinary and his throat very agile so that he performed the widest intervals quickly and with the greatest ease and certainty Passage work and all kinds of melismas were of no difficulty to him. In the invitation of free ornamentation in a dojo, he was very fertile. So that's a whole <laughs> lot of words that don't really necessarily mean anything if you're not familiar with how people talk I, about. I, I did vocal get technique. the fertile pun though. That was that was pretty good. Yeah, got a wink. Got a gotta leave a wink, a wink. in there. A little bit. So the, all of this is talking about his ability to use his voice beyond the just the tone itself. And so one thing that's drawn to is the difference between flexibility and agility. And Castrati had to do both of those things. Flexibility has to do with how easily can you change the way your voice is singing in a given moment. And that can be things like dynamics, whether you're singing loud or soft, articulation, whether you're singing staccato and detached or legato and ta- and really linked together, and breath control to kind of tie all those things together and change them on a dime. That is in contrast to agility, which means singing a lot of notes very fast. And these castrati had to do both of those things. They had to do them both in the arias themselves, and these arias were written in a certain way, so that it was material A, and then material B, and then material A would come back for a da capo. And sometimes those could be fast, sometimes they could be slow, but regardless... In that da capo section, you were expected to ornament. You were expected to come up with things that showed off the voice, showed off mm-hmm. you as a singer. But I actually, but it's actually more than that, because the music at this time was very, very strict in its rules. It had a whole set of rules, and then it had a whole set of rules about which rules you could break and when you could break them. <laughs> and in order to ornament, these singers had to know those rules cold. And they had to know their music cold because you couldn't break any of the rules. And people knew the rules and they were listening to it. So these singers, these young boys, would study nine, ten hours a day to be able to master this work. They spent one hour a day practicing just trilling between two notes. The, yeah. That's just, my nightmare. My this <laughs> this kind of a schedule, like when we talk about them as singers, they're really they really weren't just singers. They had to basically have all the abilities of a composer in order to make a career as a singer. Because literally, they they studied music theory, counterpoint. Uh, Farinelli uh, himself uh, actually would often he composed himself a little bit, and he wrote down a lot of his own ornamentations in certain places, which are very treasured sort of uh, objects now. And um, just like looking at some of the descriptions of what these days of training were like was very physical and it was also mentally incredibly taxing. And the other thing physically taxing that you'll really get about these arias, if you listen to any of them, is just how long the phrases are because Mm. of the physiology of being a castrato and and Farnelli in particular, even among his peers, just had the ability to sing for like a minute at a time without breathing. 542 notes in that in that time period. Um, and he would do all kinds of fancy things like crescendoing up and decrescendoing 
to to a huge volume and then make it as tiny as possible and just they could execute everything and so in order to hear what kind of music was being written to execute on we've put together a little spotify playlist of a number of these arias so this first clip that I've picked really shows off the agility and just the extre- extremeness of agility that was called for in this music. And this is um, Vivica Genot singing the aria Qual Guerriero in Campo Armato from Idaspe. <laughs> To get an idea of what kind of breath control I'm talking about with being able to sustain notes and go up high and go down low and have it all sound totally even and linked together with really bold phrasing, I want to show you a clip of the one and only Cecilia Bartoli singing Cecilia. Son Qual Nave. Just to get a sense of what that same aria would, that same selection of the same aria would sound like with a different singer, because you could really make an individual mark here. Uh, here's countertenor David Hansen singing also Son Qual Nave. And finally, I talked earlier about ornamentation, and this ornamentation was very improvisatory at the time. You were kind of expected to do something different every night and come up with something wild that both showed you off and made the audience happy that they came. And that wasn't just true in the fast music. You also had to be very tasteful in the slower music. Uh, And to hear a clip of an example, here is Anne Hallenberg singing Ombra Fedele. Uh, a, both the original section A and the ornaments she adds when it comes back in the da capo. Oh, 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 oh,
And the last thing that I would add here is just that he, it, as mu- as talented of a musician as Farinelli was, he also did get become this kind of international star because he had really great connections. His teacher, it's all about who you know, <laughs> his teacher was Nicolo Porpora, who was one of the leading voice teachers at the time and is still remembered today as being one of Farinelli's teacher. But Farinelli became Farinelli because he studied with Porpora. <laughs> yeah, you and know? he had his uh, debut with a Porpora piece. Um, when he was only 15 years old, which is still bonkers to me. And, and a lot um, of them, yeah, a lot of the music that he recorded was either written by his teacher or by his brother, who knew, yeah. they both knew his voice really well and would highlight things that he he could do specifically, his his strengths and, and really what his special calling cards. But one other one that can kind of get overlooked here is that he was really good friends with uh, Pietro Metastasio, who is the librettist of Baroque opera. He wrote almost all of them yeah everything <laughs> yeah <laughs> very very talented there's it's, a really beautiful that... portrait maybe we'll show that right now the portrait of Fadinelli and and metastasio enjoy oh wow that's a great portrait oliver <laughs> i love that you put that in thank you for making me edit that in later after the fact um but i, I absolutely like uh it really was he he really was a, a force of nature as a talent but he was also one of those people who really was able to find himself in situations where he could really use his talent to his advantage to get to know people who could give him other opportunities who could further his career um and um uh, and you know, like he knew, he knew emperors, he knew kings, he knew queens. Um, he had a, a the height of his public career was in London with the Opera of Nobility, which was sort of a rival company to handle, and he single handedly um, saved uh, saved its finances for a few years. By the way, um, and that despite his massive salary, which was uh, about fifteen hundred pounds per per season, which is quite a lot in the seventeen thirties. Which added up to about five thousand pounds once you include gifts from all of his admirers to give you some sense of the kind of people he was palling around with. And but, there were many admirers. And there were many, many admirers. But here's the thing: um, usually, when we're talking about the story of opera singers in the 20th century or the 21st century, it's a lot of grind, grind, grind. They have a big break and they spend the rest of their careers singing in front of the adoring public. Farinelli actually went a step beyond that because in this time period, of course you have lots of kings and royalty still at play here. So after London um, in the 1730s, um, Farinelli went to the court of the Spanish king, Philip V, and never sang in public again, which is 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 kind of earth-shattering to me that he had such a relatively short career where people actually heard him who weren't the king, but we still know who he is. And the reason he got called to the court of King Philip V um, it was very interesting because the king was very ill. He was um, he was probably uh, um, he probably had depression, as we would now think of it as. Um, and his uh, and his doctors thought that music might literally be the best medicine for him. So he he sang uh, he sang for the king um, uh, almost on a nightly basis, became the official chamber musician. Um, he organized and performed concerts for the royal family and uh, organized a the theater there. He was even knighted in 1750, and it became officially a noble, um, which is kind of amazing from, you know, because this is always the gamble that was being made, right? Farinelli is like the American dream story nowadays. Basically, if you were a young boy who could sing in a... Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Because there's... there's, um, there's, uh, Back in the... uh, Most people who became castrati came from poor families. There was no... Uh, hope for social climbing, but uh, the success of people like Farinelli, who were able to propel their voice literally into the court of a king, uh, was very alluring for poor families. Uh, however, after Philip V died, there was some drama in the court, and he got caught up in it. Uh, Ferdinand VI succeeded King Philip, um, and uh, he loved music, and he wanted to keep Farinelli on, even though his, uh, even though. 
Philip V was dead. However, Philip V's widow, Queen Elisabetta Farnese, did not like the fact that Ferdinand was in power. She moved away into her own separate palace, was very nasty, talked to diplomats uh, um, without him, kind of as like as if she was really the queen, said very nasty things, and she wanted Farinelli to come with her. And he said, no, I'd prefer to stay here. And she never forgave him for that. And because of this, um, when her son became uh, the queen after uh, Ferdinand died, um, her son was Charles III of Spain, um, uh, it meant that he was out. Also, Charles III hated music, which didn't help either. Um, and so uh, he went essentially into retirement uh, at a f at fairly, fairly young age. Again, he hadn't been in public since uh, early, early 1730s. Um, and um, and he just kind of retired to Bologna and he uh, lived there until his death into 1780 in death in 1782. He outlived many of his contemporaries. He collected pianos, art, violins. He was apparently very generous, um, but was kind of out of the public eye. But people still kept coming. Um, uh, luminaries, nobility, uh, composers like Mozart and Gluck came to sort of like uh, meet him and just kind of get a sense of who he was. Um, he was often called the greatest castrato singer of all time, even though there was only a very narrow window to actually hear him. Uh, and, um, and it's just, it's just so such a bittersweet ending to his story. I think that it's that he just kind of ended up retiring out of the public eye and just, and just like has this legend behind him that lives on to this day. And in fact, his story inspired a lot of pieces of art going forward. Yeah, and it did, there's that play that came out a couple years ago about Farinelli and the King. There's also the yep. movie, the biopic of him, that where if you've heard of him, that's yeah, probably wasn't, where. Wasn't uh, Yeston Davies in the play? Yep. Of yes. Yeah. 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 And friend of the, the show. And what the movie did to get around uh, the fact that there are obviously no castrati anymore is that they kind of in post they mixed together the voice of a car uh, a countertenor, Derek Lee Reagan. Uh, with a mezzo-soprano whose name I can't remember right now. Uh, uh, actually, she was a color tour. It's was Ava Marie Valeska or something yeah, it was some like Polish that. Yeah, soprano. I can look it up. And just to have all kind. Of, yeah, she was a soprano. You're right, but but that in it, there's more to the to his legacy in these tribute albums that come out every once in a while, and a big component of the Farinelli tribute album is like what does it mean to do one of those and it <laughs> yeah and it, you're kind of saying something really specific about yourself if you are doing a Farinelli album uh because breath control and phrasing are the hallmarks that have stood the test of time that's what people know from the writing that's what you're going to be judged on uh, and so the thing that you're going to do to emulate it is to show that you can do all kinds of crazy pants runs and hold notes forever, and go up, and go down, and do leaps, and uh, make really bold, wild phrasing choices. And that's why the singers who have done these albums are people like Cecilia Bartoli, Vivica <laughs> Janot, Anne Hallenberg, Philippe Jaruski. Like, these are superhuman techniques who have something to say about kind of themselves in uh, and their place in singer history as well. Uh Singers like Bartoli and Vivica Genot in particular, like a lot, they got their start doing Rossini, which, as Weston alluded to earlier in mm -hmm. this show, um, Italian opera is not the most respected field of the genre in order to be like taken seriously <laughs> as a musician. And so to switch over and release this album of crazy pants Baroque music shows that you're a different kind of singer. You're willing to put in a different kind amount of work. It makes a statement about you as an artist. And, uh, that's that's why we're gonna keep seeing them, and the excerpts that you that come from them are can be really high quality. <laughs> and I believe you've included those on the Spotify playlist. They are also included. Video viewers in the Spotify there. playlist. By the way, her name was <laughs> Ava Malas Godlevska. Amazing. Uh, yes. Polish Thank you, Oliver. Oliver. Thank you, Oliver. <laughs> so this first clip here is comes from the movie soundtrack, just so you can hear the problem solving that they came up with there. Uh, and this is an aria. This this is uh, La Chacchiopianga, an aria you probably know from Rinaldo, from <laughs> the movie soundtrack of Farinelli, with Derek Lee Reagan and 
Oh, what is her name? It's kind of Ava Malaskodlevsky. Yes, <laughs> Ava Malaskodlevska. <laughs> there it is. Next up, we have a clip from Cecilia Bocelli's recent Farinelli album, the more recent one where she's wearing a beard, not the earlier one where she was a marble statue with her pants <laughs> off. Uh, and this is Si Traditor Tu Sei. Si Traditor Tu Sei Finally, just to round it off with another countertenor, we'll close with Philippe Jaruski singing Mira in Cell. Uh, this is back to being an aria by Nicolo Porpora from Arianna e Teseo. I think that it's not just uh, it's not just these tribute albums. I do also want to point out that he, uh, Farnelli has had uh, books written about him, uh, various novels, uh, a couple of operas, even some comic operas back in the day. Um, uh, there, there's a, a lamp, I believe, in 1744, like in his lifetime was writing about him, uh, an opera about him. Um, uh, he shows up in Candide of all places, places Candide by Voltaire, the Voltaire. And to me, that's just such a great, a great example of how even in a transient art form, uh, there are ways of achieving a sort of immortality, even beyond the point where anyone will know what you actually sounded like. And there's something hopeful, a little bit sad and a very exciting about that all in one. And to me, that's that's Farinelli. I take it back. I want a Farinelli impersonator for next year's Super Bowl halftime show. <laughs> Just really quickly, because you there's one thing I was that you didn't touch on that's sort of part of the titillating story of the Castrati and Farinelli. We're leaving that to you. <laughs> uh, well, there's that that um, they were people sexually fetishized them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because yeah. they had very unusual bodies. They were sometimes androgynous, but still very 
massive Usually very tall, just yeah. because of how body chemistry works. And it, yeah. it should be pointed out that, like, they still had all the business down there. Um, it, often... They had it, the it, wiener and no, no beans, yeah. that's all. Well, Frank, I, Frank actually, no beans, some, so. some, sometimes they actually did even include the beans. They just severed it more more subtly. Okay. It depended on how good the doctor was in the time period. But they, they had both male and female suitors, yes. and um, they were... Good for not getting you pregnant. <laughs> this is true. You're quite right. But I think it did lead to um, a lot of, um, I think, uh, really kind of mo- uh, what, w- what would become modern ideas about gender and sexuality and things like this. And, and even past the point where castrati were being written for, pants rolls are still a very much a thing in opera. And I think a lot of that, that, inquisition into gender and challenging the binary in opera comes from these castrati, this this long tradition of castrati and i think without that we would have a much less interesting art form to talk about and experience and let's also just say that um just because you were castrated did not mean you were going to become a great singer many of these families were, were gambling on their children's health, and many of them lost that gamble. So to yep. become a star like Farinelli did, and the other, you know, famous castrati uh, of the time, they were really, really lucky. Thank you, Weston and Matt, for the deep dive into the lifetimes and music of Farinelli. Again, uh, music is on the Spotify playlist, and we will link to that via our website, operaboxscore.com. It's time for the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Friends of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo and Brenda Ray have been named two of the co-winners of the Metropolitan Opera's 2021 Beverly Sills Artists Award. They join future friends of the show, bass Ryan Speedo-Green, tenor Ben Bliss, and soprano Aaron Morley. Meant to help subsidize training and study that will further artists' careers, the Five Sills Artist Award co-winners will each receive a prize of $10,000. English National Opera is using singing techniques to help patients who are experiencing post-COVID-19 recovery symptoms. ENO Breathe is a joint project between the opera company and the NHS. Patients are taught breathing and singing exercises by professionals, which help combat breathing issues that can linger after recovering from the virus. The premiere of a new opera by Lebanese composer Zad Multaka has drawn criticism for having an all-white cast of singers in brown face makeup and hijabs to portray fictional characters. While not going as far as to call the production of L'Orangerie overtly racist, critic Natasha Gauthier writes for Opera Canada that the production is, quote, shockingly insensitive and regressive. At a time when we are celebrating how far we have come, it's also a reminder of how far we have to go. In better news from our neighbors to the north, Tapestry Opera announces Jolaine Galland and Jennifer Tung as their inaugural Women in Musical Leadership Fellows. Those two will be mentored by conductors Rosemary Thompson from the Okanagan Symphony and Opera Colonna and Joanne Folletta from the Buffalo Philharmonic. The Opera Nacional de Lorraine has announced the historic appointment of Marta Gardolinska as its next music director. She will be the first woman to take on the position in the company's history and is also the first Polish music director for the organization. I'm in. The San Diego Opera has announced Opera Hack 2.0, an event that combines the expertise of the theater world and cutting-edge technology in order to, quote, virtually gather, brainstorm, and discover new methods for theatrical production and performance. The online event comes with $15,000 in prizes for winning ideas. International online voice competition Boris Martinovich was named by Boris Martinovich, who was world-famous American and Croatian opera singer. Their mission was to connect talented singers with artists, managers, and agents to provide them career development, auditions, and job opportunities to connect voice students with universities all around the world. They were and are very much satisfied with the number of people, contestants, and audience. However, someone has a major problem with that. Zach Finkelstein, tenor, accused for false accusations against international voice competition, Boris Martinovich, and the organizers. All right, this week's Yellow Cards. Russia. St. Petersburg's Marinsky Theater is scheduled to perform Eugene Onegin on February 10th with Anna Trebko. Florida. 
Per the Orlando Sentinel, Orlando Opera Orlando's Hansel and Gretel was performed and will go ahead with their next production, Death of Ivan Ilyich, on February 19th. This week's red cards. And by the way, that's two yellows for Opera Orlando, so that's basically a red. Austria, the Wiener Staatsoper, is postponing its live stream of Nozze di Figaro and Carmen due to infections among the performance teams. Belgium. La Monet in Brussels announced that it will remain closed throughout February. Finland. The Finnish National Opera and Ballet has suspended performances until March. Oregon. Portland Opera is postponing its production of Frida and canceling its Il Trovatore. Spain. Valencia's Palau de las Artes will postpone their fall staff until March and Verdi Requiem until July. Exit stage right, Eva Kutaz, who oversaw Harmonia Mundi's A&R for nearly 30 years, has died at the age of 77. Working with her husband, Bernard Kutaz, who founded the music label in 1958, Eva created an artistic roster that earned her immense respect and admiration, and she produced more than 800 recordings for the label. American conductor and pianist Kevin McCutcheon died from COVID-19 in Berlin at the age of 66. He was a conductor at the Opera Company of Philadelphia before he made his conducting debut at the Deutsche Oper Berlin in 19... Excuse me, 1985, where he went on to shape the sound of the company for three and a half decades. And on this day, February 1st, in 1859, Irish-born American operetta composer Victor Herbert was born. In 1872, it was the birth of English contralto Clara Butt, the first singer to premiere Elgar Sea Pictures. In 1874, it was the birth of a favorite Strauss opera librettist, Hugo von Hofmannsthal. In 1890, Germaine Lubin, soprano, was born in Paris. In 1891, Alexander Kipnis, the Russian-American bass, was born. In 1893, it was the debut of Puccini's Manon Lescaut in Turin. In 1896, another Puccini opera premiered. This time, it was La Boheme, with Arturo Toscanini conducting. In 1904, Enrico Caruso earned 4,000 bucks, singing his first music for Victor Records. In 1918, Franz Lehár's operetta Vaudilerche Zinkt premiered in Budapest. In 1922, it was the birth of the great Italian soprano Renata Tebaldi. In 1931, for Weston, Arnold Schoenberg's opera Von Heute auf Morgen premiered in Frankfurt. In 1936, it was the birth of the bass baritone and early music specialist Max von Egmont. In 1939, it was the first performance of Wolf Ferrari's La Dama Boba in Milan. In 1946, Carol Neblet was born in Modesta, California. And in 1949, RCA Victor Records released its first small 7-inch plastic recording with a big hole in the center. The newfangled disc style played at 45 rotations per minute and wiped out the 78 RPM counterparts within six months. And that's your two-minute drill. from 1975 singing Marietta's lead with the Munich oh. Radio Orchestra. Oh, mm-hmm. Carol. So good. Uh, one Rest small correction for our yes. Kipnis stands out there, but the land where he was born is in modern day Ukraine. So Ooh. you don't want you don't want them coming <laughs> Thank for you. you. you want it's a good thing I didn't right. say that with an accent too. A fake <laughs> Slavic accent. <laughs> All right, Ashley, take a breath and tell us your hot take on English National Opera's Breathe program. I think this is so great. I'm so excited. So when it comes to recovery from COVID-19, 
it affects everybody differently. But one of the things yeah. that's really starting to come out is something that's called long COVID, which basically are these long lingering respiratory issues that are weeks and weeks, sometimes months, sometimes half a year after you have quote unquote recovered from the virus. So the fact that professional singers are teaching people proper breathing techniques to help get them actually breathing again, to help reduce their stress and anxiety, and also helping them feel useful and part of the solution in the process. I think this is mm -hmm. just amazing. I like that it started out small. It's going to be at 25 different centers across the UK. Hopefully they can put it more places. Let's do it over here in the States. But I just, I think it's a, it's a really cool way to see the technical uh, of the artistry work together with the technical of the healthcare field. Yeah, who wants Britain back in the European Union now, huh? <laughs> most of Britain, I imagine, at this I'm like, point. I, I do. And it seems like most of Scotland, too, maybe, at this Ooh, point. Not that I'm an spicy. expert in uh, British politics. Matt, take a breath and tell us about brown face in Canada and if, your hot take. I mean, if I had gone to see the sneak peek of this opera production, I would have had to take many deep breaths. So this is a this was a, a sneak peek of a new opera by a Lebanese composer uh, for the Montreal contemporary opera uh, producer Jean Libre or Free Songs. Um, it is the composer is Lebanese. It's set in the Middle East, but none of the singers were from that area. And I like it is twenty twenty one. I don't even know what else to say. <laughs> and Canada's usually really good about those Canada things. Canada is usually good about this. Th they, I it's mean, they so at least weird. think about it before. Well, I, clearly I not in this case. <laughs> Just like e even even if you can't find any singers of color, I feel like once you bring out the the face paint, you gotta start questioning something. Am I right? And, you, and you know, this review makes it sound like it wasn't even. I mean. It wasn't even well done, brown face is like quite a complaint, but I, I, what are you that's doing? A, that's a contradiction in terms, I think. I, <laughs> yeah, it's I might true. Yeah. There. Um, oh, yeah, God. somebody somebody needs their their head, their brown faced head examined on this one. This makes it makes absolutely no sense. Here's what here's what I don't understand, Oliver, about the Beverly Sills Award is that so each of these singers gets ten thousand dollars, but these are all folks, at least in my opinion, whose careers are completely established. They've already, yeah. you know, reached. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, like, I think it's just most of them George... have already been on opera box score and everything. <laughs> George, you might be yeah. onto something about um, the way the opera world works. Yeah. Mm. yeah I mean, they I, had 50,000 I... bucks to spend and they divided it up amongst five singers who I, I love all of them. Why yeah. not yeah. just name them the winners of whatever the Beverly Sills Artist Award and give 50,000 bucks to somebody like Michelle Bradley or something, you know? It's nothing or about these singers. It's nothing about their talent level. It's about m money that could be spent elsewhere. And I mean, this could be given to five up and coming singers, one from each of the five boroughs of New York City, just to come up with a, an idea. And, and the fact of the yeah. matter is when you get to that level, even when you do get to that level of career, like it's hard work and you do, and you do, deserve to get paid for your work and for your recognition but when you're talking about study grants and trying to help establishing artists get a foothold that's not what they're doing here at the beverly sills i mean the met has all its weird awards anyway i mean opera news is basically an arm of the met you know they have their annual <laughs> opera news awards and like a people spicy like, take from oliver yeah and the richard people like joseph Kalea <laughs> yeah. get inducted into the Opera News Awards, you know, he's, I mean, whatever. The Newsies? <laughs> yeah, the Newsies. <laughs> when there are, you know, really important singers who've had long careers at the Met who have not been acknowledged by that particular honorific at this point. So it's all a bunch of hoo-ha. But I do like the idea of um, bigging up um, ben Bliss and Aaron Morley and Ryan Speedo Green because they are all great and our friends Brenda Ray and Anthony Ralph Gaston. So I think none of people know Brenda Ray, so I'm glad that she's getting her props. And uh, Ben Bliss is a rising Mozartian tenor, very great mm -hmm. on stage. We all know Anthony Ralph Gaston, so he's doing fine. He doesn't need the ten thousand bucks. I'm sure he can he can make ten thousand bucks busking, you know. Uh, but you know, let's say everybody needs ten thousand bucks right now. I mean, so many people are out of work, so. Mixed feelings. Uh, 
somebody who may or may not need the money. So, Weston, who is this guy? Zach Filkenstein. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good question. So if you're wondering um, if Oliver was having a seizure during the two minute (laughs) drill, uh, that's because um, he was uh, there. Since I was reading week. from an I was reading from an interview which That's can be found in in the very respectable uh online the uh, Diane Martinovich yeah. yeah life and business online magazine yes. so if you if you recall from last week there was a little bit of a, a scandal that middle class artist broke with our friend of the show Zach Finkelstein who uh, found uh, this this competition, this voice competition, um, was posting uh, pictures of artists and bios uh, of of singers who were not who had never heard of the competition and who were not involved uh, in, in what seems to be allegedly we should say allegedly so the legal team of lawyers doesn't get me um, the international allegedly, team of lawyers. Uh, international team of lawyers doesn't get me. Uh, allegedly, uh, in an attempt to sort of essentially trick singers into uh, giving them money, thinking the uh, the 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 contest is more high profile than a, than was thought. So uh, there was a post by a Zaharian Johnson uh, entitled. Zach Finkelstein, tenor, accused for false accusations against international voice competition Boris Martinovich and the organizers with an exclamation point, which basically um, uh, doxes our good friend Zach Finkelstein while still misspelling uh, his name wrong in many different different ways. Seven different iterations Uh, of his last name. Weston, this is good tabloid journalism. What's the problem? To be clear, it was seven... Different spellings. Seven yeah. different seven misspellings. Yeah. I think it was 26 different, 26 times that his name was used in the article and misspelled seven different ways. So, but let yeah. me just, let me just say, just to summarize really quickly, Zach Fickelstein saw this irregularity on this uh, competition and right. made it clear to the singing community that this is probably a scam or, you know, these people have not been asked to use their materials yep. to help this online contest international online contest, you know, uh, because they're asking $90 per contestant. So right. Zach Fickelstein published his article, Middle Class Artist, and it exploded. And, um, you know, the contest organizers um, were very upset that they were being called out. And so they had their phony website called DM Life and Business, which had nothing on it except for the competition <laughs> publicity. And suddenly, this website now all has 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 th- I think three articles at this point that are all about the competition, plus some articles that were clearly ripped off and plagiarized from the internet. Uh, plus, uh, we talked about it last week. You know, advertisements for uh, the contest organizers, um, life coaching, and <laughs> the Korean orphans and stuff like that. So it's it seems to be completely a scam that's created by this one person, Diana. Martinovich, the wife of international <laughs> based <parental. laughs> and um yeah and they they keep digging themselves in a bigger and bigger hole with so many lies and there's so much evidence that yeah, she's they, putting they, out there herself that's just implicating her as being the behind all of this scam so like like she, she's accusing zach of being part of a conspiracy a, a u.s to, conspiracy yeah. uh, well they, they they have apparently they have information that indicates that some people outside the U- u.s were involved in this conspiracy too to take oh, a direct hence quote. the international team of lawyers <laughs> yes, oh, yes the international team of lawyers and it's 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 the the i mean i don't want to shame anyone's you know grammar for you know being in a second language but they're just like the sheer unhinged just volume of run-on sentences, badly punctuated, badly spelled. Is yeah. is really kind of extraordinary. You have to check it out, folks. It's dmmagazine.org. Just go to that website and just sniff around. Just click on the links and hopefully you won't get a virus. Don't don't enter your luck. social security number anywhere. <laughs> Opera box score is not responsible for whatever whatever uh, computer worms you might get off of this if, site. If everything on your computer turns into a GeoCity site after you visit it, <laughs> I'm really sorry. It's really but extraordinary. I, yeah, it's bonkers to me that, like, what Zach did was report on stuff that did, in fact, happen. Yes. A singer 
a singer, her headshot was used and she did not give permission because she did not apply to the competition. Zach writes an article that says, hey, this singer didn't apply to this competition and her stuff's on the website. And then chaos ensues for, what are we on, day eight, nine, somewhere in here? And there's a full, like, docs campaign on our poor buddy Zach, who was just telling the truth. And and this is really blowing up in, like, the singer community, too. So if you have any friends who are singers or a singer yourself, just do some digging around on Facebook. You will find, find comments it. on comments on comments. It's it's very entertaining. Singer community it. also knows how to beat a it, dead it, horse. It, it really is sort of the uh, uh, the singer equivalent to what, what happened with the GameStop, GameStop no, last basically, week. Yeah. I have a really bad feeling that uh, we're going to be talking about this again on a, on a future show. Thank Let's God. wrap this one up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. We're going to start with Oliver Camacho. What do you have for us? You got a good call or a bad call this week, Oliver? Well, many of you know who follow tennis that the start of the Australian Open was delayed, COVID-related. And actually, that's good news for Serena Williams because that extra couple of weeks to prepare is allowing her to compete. She had an Achilles injury. And uh, this is her chance, again, to beat the record uh, for most Grand Slams. Matt Cummings. Start your countdowns now, people, because in two weeks uh, on PBS, there's going to be a new documentary, Voice of Freedom, about our bae, Marian Anderson, uh, hosted by our other bae, Renee Elise Goldsberry. I will be watching this many, many times. Bays on bays. Weston, you've done a lot of talking tonight, so we're going to let you rest those vocal cords. Ashley Hardgrave. And while we're waiting for that Marianne Anderson doc to come out, uh, I'm not one to promote Lifetime television. However, uh, there is a movie coming out this week uh, that had, it's a Mahalia Jackson biopic and it stars Daniel Brooks, who is from Orange is the New Black as Mahalia Jackson. That comes out on February 3rd. I'm very excited about it. And for myself, I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't want to watch a lot of movies, but I have started watching Ted Lasso on Apple TV. It is a sports-driven sitcom, and I'm absolutely adoring it. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm at normmodel.com on facebook search for opera box score on twitter and instagram we're at opera box score help us deepen the bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts email us at operaboxscore@gmail.com. subscribe to the podcast on stitcher or favorite our show on apple podcasts the views and opinions expressed on opera box score are solely those of the show's creative team Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is totes not cool. Nah, it's actually cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you watch for the ads. We're back with an all-new show next week when we send and receive opera valentines. Even Weston's going to get one. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more trophies. Join us. 